0: everybody, and welcome to Explain It to Me like I'm a 10-year-old. Today, I am very lucky to have Dr. Robert Cialdini with me, an emeritus professor of marketing and psychology at the University of Arizona. Back in 1984, Robert wrote Influence, a New York Times bestseller that sold over 5 million copies. In the book, he writes about his experience living and studying the principles of influence and simplifies them into six universal principles to influence people. I am so excited for our interview today. Hi, Robert. How are you doing today?
1: I am well, Charlie. I hope the same is uh, true for you.
0: I am very well. I'm very excited. So to start things off, what led you down the path to study the intersection of psychology and business?
1: Well, I think business people, for the most part, of course, want to be persuasive. They want to be influential. And there are some kinds of pressures on them. Uh, to make them sometimes be less than ethical in uh, their claims and assertions and uh, marketing uh, strategies and so on. And I wanted to uh, offer them an alternative, and that is uh, ethical influence, ways to be effective to move people in their direction without having to resort to things that they would prefer uh, not to have to do.
0: I know you do have this focus on ethical persuasion, what do you see as the difference between influence and manipulation?
1: Well, I claim that there are seven universal principles of influence. Let's take one of them like the principle of authority, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Another would be the principle of scarcity, that uh, people are more willing to say yes to you if you can show them that experts who are true authorities in the uh, arena have been recommending what what you are providing or what you are claiming. For scarcity, uh, people want uh, more of what they can have less of. And uh, and, uh, so one thing you can do uh, to be uh, um, influential is to show them how what you have is unique or uncommon or or rare uh, in in availability. And so uh, what I say is, To be ethical, you merely have to point to the existence of one or another of these things in the situation, right? And if you do, if there truly is a a set of uh, authority voices that support your uh, position, uh, you bring that to consciousness. That influences people, but in a correct direction um, and allows them to move in uh, your direction as well without any kind of uh, dishonesty involved. Manipulation involves um, being deceptive about the extent to which there are authorities who uh, are aligned with your position, giving information about uh, uh, credibility and your uh, uh, the extent to which you are aligned with the true experts in the field giving that information in some kind of a dishonest way. So that's the difference, merely pointing to something that's truly there in the situation that normally steers people correctly or manufacturing it or counterfeiting it or in some way uh, 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 being dishonest in its presentation.
0: Yes. And I know you mentioned in your book for a few years of your career, you were a waiter and a salesman and really dedicated yourself to learning about how these principles are applied in in real life. Um, what was your biggest takeaway from those experiences?
1: Well, the biggest one was I, I looked at a variety of influence uh, practitioners in a variety of influence professions to see what they said worked in their training programs. I would I I went undercover into their training programs to learn what they said was most powerful in getting people to move in their direction. And what surprised me was how small the footprint was of principles that worked for all of them. There were only seven. There were only seven principles. Out of all the various tactics and strategies and practices that they used, you could categorize those that were universal across the range of influence professionals into just seven categories. So I decided to write a book. I put one per chapter in the book. And I have to say, Charlie, the book has been very good to me.
0: <laughs> so your book is, is based on a lot of different experiments that you and others have run. I'm curious, what makes a compelling psychology experiment?
1: It's one in which we have randomized control trials, like a great medical experiment in which there is a control group that doesn't get the treatment, let's say exposure to information from uh, authorities about a particular topic. Um, But another one that does get information about that And then maybe extends it to say, well, what's the impact of having just one authority versus multiple authorities who can give you a consensus on this? And for example, the research shows very clearly a single authority ups your impact, a multiple authority multiplies that impact. So always make sure to. Search the environment for a variety of voices that can and testifiers who can speak in your behalf.
0: Right, and and you've done many of these experiments. Uh, I'm I'm also curious about this. Has there ever been an outcome of an experiment that's really surprised you?
1: Well, yeah, there was one. I'll tell you that. um, Somebody once asked me, so what is the study you've done? that is your favorite and almost nobody knows about. The favorite study that almost nobody knows about, but is still a favorite of yours. And it was a study done on littering behavior, but not as something that people do to despoil the uh, environment that they're in. It was as an indicator of a person's attitude. We went to nine different polling locations during a presidential election. I live in the Phoenix area, so we went to nine different polling locations. And when cars were parked in the lots outside of the polling place, my research assistants and I went to each uh, car and put a flyer on the windshield. Half of them said, vote for the candidate who was the Democrat, right? The other half said vote for the candidate who was the Republican nominee. And then we looked to see whose flyers were littered, right? The more flyers that were littered, the less likely that person was to win the election. So we were able to predict the outcome of the election before the results were in, By simply looking at the number of flyers on the ground and taking the reciprocal and saying the winner is the one with the fewer flyers on the ground, right? We had nine polling places and we predicted the election in all nine.
0: Maybe that's what CNN should do. They should just put flyers and that's how they predict the elections.
1: They could. And it works better than uh, exit polls where people sometimes won't tell you the truth about who they voted for because they're a little ashamed of it sometimes right mm-hmm. so but our study predicted uh just as well as the election uh uh, uh polls did yeah mm-hmm. i mean the the uh, the exit polls did
0: Yes. And there's been a lot of principles that really have stood out to me through the book, but one was, was social proof. And the, one of the examples you used was how if you stare at a random building, maybe like three people would come and glance. But if you bring five friends and you go back and stare at that building, a crowd would come.
1: Yeah. I- especially Especially if you stare at an upper... Uh, window in that building, Mm -hmm. on a a tall building, you'll get everybody who walks by to crane their necks. And one study showed that if you do that, you'll get 80% of people to at least conform with you, even though there's nothing there. There's nothing. There's not even a cloud. There's not even a person looking out of the window. Just the fact that other people are doing it provides proof social proof it's not empirical proof it's not logical proof for doing this it's social proof what others are doing establishes at least temporarily the validity of that action
0: why yeah why is it so powerful that it can get 80 percent of people to do it
1: normally it steers us correctly If a lot of your friends, Charlie, are raving about a new uh, movie or a new piece of software or a new restaurant, right, that's good information that it's a good choice for you too. And you don't have to go test it out first. You've got somebody doing a beta test for you. All your friends have done it. So it makes sense to do it as well.
0: And another principle from influence that stood out to me was commitment and consistency and how if you were able to get someone to make a small commitment, you could more easily make them to get a bigger commitment. Why? Why is that?
1: Because people want to see themselves as honest and straightforward and congruent with what they say and do and feel, and they want to be consistent with their existing Uh, stands or opinions or behaviors and they want the people around them to see them as consistent because people who are inconsistent are um wishy-washy or dishonest they say one thing they do another right they don't want people to see them like that so there's a great pressure on us to be uh aligned with what we have already said or done in the future.
0: And I mean, sometimes I definitely find myself influenced by both of those principles, especially social proof. Uh, I'm just curious for myself and our audience, how can we recognize when we're being influenced to make more informed decisions?
1: Well, um, you have to know what the principles are, right? And I'll just briefly run through them. Reciprocity, people who give to you, you. we want to give back to them, right? So people who give to us, uh, we, we say yes to those we owe. Uh, liking, we say yes to the people we like who are similar to us or who praise us. So watch out for those people <laughs> who do it uh, just to get us to say yes to them rather than honestly. Uh, we've already talked about social proof. We say yes to those who can show us that a lot of other people just like us have been moving in the direction they're recommending. Authority, we've talked about that. We wanna follow the lead of legitimate authorities. Scarcity, we've talked about that. People want to seize those opportunities that are scarce or rare or dwindling in availability. Commitment and consistency. We wanna be consistent with, if somebody gets us to say yes to a small request, right? Now we will be significantly more likely to say yes to a larger request that's logically consistent with the position we've already taken. And then finally, there's the principle of unity, which has to do with the extent to which we say yes to people who are one of us in our tribes, who share an identity with us, right? If people can convince us that we have those, then we can Um, move in, we're likely to move in their direction. So for me, if we simply point to one or another of those things that are truly there, we're informing people into assent. If we invent those factors in a situation, then we're being manipulative and unethical.
0: These principles of influence can also be used in not great ways by con artists and cult leaders and things like that, right? Could you give us some examples of how these principles are applied unethically?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, for example, um, one of the things that we uh, uh, we do is to say yes to the people who seem trustworthy to us, who seem logically um uh, correct and uh, trying to be in our best interests. So anybody who can use the principle of trust or to the idea of trust will get us. And a lot of people will do that just by the way that they dress. For example, con artists do it all the time. They dress very elegantly. They rent uh, expensive cars. They give themselves uh, uh, uh names like uh, uh, ambassador this or senator that or uh, president this, uh, uh, CEO, and so on. And so that works, and it works, unfortunately, um, in these online scams where we find that a lot of people are taken by by individuals, scammers, who call them give them information about their background and experience and so on. Say that they're from a, a very prestigious organization and you have people falling for that and giving their money to these uh, con artists.
0: Yeah, and, and honestly, about the, the 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 presenting yourself, I remembered one of the things from the book was if a person in worker boots... In trousers, um, and walks across the street under red light. No one, no one would follow them. But if it was a businessman with like a suit, many people would follow.
1: Three hundred percent more people follow him into traffic against the light, against the law, against the traffic when he's wearing a suit instead of uh, uh, jeans and 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 a denim shirt.
0: You've written this book there more than almost forty years ago. And it's been applied so many different ways and impacted so many people. What are you most proud of in the way your work has impacted people?
1: You know, I'm a persuasion researcher all my life. And a, a f- couple of decades ago, I decided that the single best act of persuasion that I could, in, that I could uh, instigate and uh, the act that I could urge people to take would be one toward pro-environmental behavior right and within that research program we did a we um partnered with a company that sends the the members of power companies the, the customers of power company notices telling them where they stand relative to their comparable neighbors in terms of energy usage right and if they're doing well, they get a little smiley emoji, right? If not, they get a frown emoji, right? That company now has 100 utilities around the United States where they're sending these messages to people every month. Here's how you stand relative to your neighbors in energy conservation. And after 10 years, it has it has prevented 36 billion pounds of carbon dioxide from entering our atmosphere 36 billion pounds of a gas that's the thing i'm most proud of
0: yeah that's that's incredibly powerful yes Thing I found so interesting about how your work is held up is you wrote it back 1984, and the principles are still as relevant as they are today as they were 40 years ago. Why? Why is that?
1: Well, you know, uh, people will sometimes tell me, you know, Robert, uh, your book Influence is considered the Bible of online marketers. But when you wrote it, there were no. There was no online marketing. There was no internet. How could you look forward and see what was going to work 40 years ahead? And I said, I, I didn't look ahead. I looked inside. I looked at the human condition. I looked at what the factors are that have always move people in the direction of a communicator and a communication um, as as members of the human species these are the things that have always worked well they're going to work on other platforms and in other eras too so that's how that came about
0: 86 percent of young americans want to become influencers Did you ever imagine that?
1: No, but I consider myself a fortunate individual because I chose a topic, a research topic that everyone is interested in. Everybody wants to know either how to become more persuasive or how to reject or deflect persuasion attempts that are employed on them in unwanted or uh, uh, undue ways. So if I ever go to a party, I'm a popular, I'm a popular party guest because people can talk to me about something that they are very interested in. And I, I'm a, I consider myself uh, fortunate in that regard.
0: Oh, my gosh. And, and another thing I'd love to touch on is that you are, you're a, prof- you are a professor. Uh, you still do, but teaching, you've taught for many years. What have you liked most about teaching?
1: I'm a ham. Charlie, I like being in front of groups. And I like being able to um, con- convert people to a new way of thinking, a new way of conceptualizing their world and their role in it. And uh, the teaching role allows me
0: that. Yes. And, and on also, I, I also had this question. Is there like a favorite lecture you would teach a specific one that you really like?
1: I used to teach one on con artists and what they did to get people to move in their direction, how to trick them and so on. And I would actually dress up with all in black with a hat uh, pulled over my eyes and, and, and get uh, somebody to come up from the class. And we would go through uh, con artist uh, practices and show the class how these things worked and, uh, I liked it because uh, it gave me some an opportunity to be a, a ham, but also the students loved it as well.
0: And one of the things that really stood out to me is that I saw you worked for the Obama campaign. And yeah. as a psychologist, I'm really curious, Like, how did you look at applying those principles into politics?
1: Well, you, you have to remember that Obama, when he first became a candidate, was a, an unknown commodity not people didn't know very much about him. He had been a senator, a one-term senator uh, in Illinois, but he didn't right. So how could he get the perception that this is somebody we ought to look at? Right? Here's what he did. He got when he gave a speech in the old days, he would stand in front of a lectern and, um and uh, with flags behind him, right? What we arranged was for him to put the audience, a lot of people in the audience, behind him. And and there was somebody from every demographic category in that audience. There were old people, there were young people, there were men, there were women, there were uh, ethnic minorities of various sorts, and, and so on. Right. So when the when when people saw him speak, they also saw social proof. Look at all the people, and there's gonna, they're gonna find somebody like them in that group. Look at all the people who think this guy is worth listening to. All right, that's an indication that I should listen to what he has to say. And then he did have good things to say, so that so the merits of his, of his case also, of course, uh, made a big difference.
0: Thank you so much for being here. I really enjoyed our conversation. My final question for you today is what is your vision for the future of persuasion and influence? And how do you see your own work fitting into that vision?
1: Well, I think it's very important that, uh, I communicate it beyond the academic community. That's why I wrote the book that uh, you, uh, you had, you had in your hand, um, uh, so that people beside my colleagues in academic social psychology or behavioral science would have access to this information. That's the most important thing, because to be truthful, the research I did was funded by the larger non-academic community, right? Those people are entitled to know what I found out about them with their money.
0: Well, thank you so much for being here. I really, really enjoyed our conversation.
1: You ask good questions.